You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church and you're just moments away from hearing one of our sermon exhortations and we're super pumped for you to be able to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but there's times where I've went to church and I get frustrated because I can't remember everything the pastor just said. Maybe I'm at a restaurant or I go home and a spouse or a friend says, hey, what did you learn today? And you get frustrated because you can't remember everything. But here's the thing. I believe we all can remember one big idea that really hit us in the head or in the heart. Now, now watch this. There are 52 Sundays in a year, 52 of them. What if you just remembered one big truth from every one of those weeks? That would be 52 learnings. That's incredible. Imagine if you took those 52 learnings and you took them so seriously and you apply them to your life. Where would you be in one year's time? Now imagine two years, three years, four years. You start to have 400 learnings from the Bible. Are you kidding me? And all of a sudden, we start to think about things like you're a mature, deepening, Christ-centered man or woman. So no matter whether you can remember all 18 points that the pastor made or you walked away with one big idea that rocked your soul soul and you said, I'm going to go activate that in my life. Be encouraged. You can do it and have an amazing time with God in our sermon today. Grace and peace. Oh man, new story, new book, same God. Let's go. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, let's open it to the book of Jonah chapter. No, I'm just kidding. We're in the book of Jonah today, praise Christ. And as we transition from one book to another, I would like to take the opportunity to talk about, guess what? folks to talk about the Bible because there's there's some churches that teach from the Bible and there's there's other churches that teach kind of about the Bible and yet there's still some churches folks that actually teach the Bible and before you go thinking I'm making a bunch of stuff up here let me say it to you again right now but let me kind of unpack it a little bit and and make some more sense of it with an explanation you see there's some churches that teach from the Bible meaning they they take a passage from the Bible and they they take a concept from the Bible and they kind of try to make sense of of it that way, and they, they talk about it abstractly, or or they pull a segment out, and they, they talk about it. Yet there's other churches that teach kind of about the Bible, meaning they take a concept from the world, and they, they take the Bible, and they try to wrap the Bible around the concept that they really want an answer to, and, and they try to go about it faithfully that way. And yet there's still some churches out here, folks, that just teach the Bible. And, and that means that they teach line upon line and verse upon verse and precept upon precept and book upon book and theme upon theme. And they're giving God the glory, praise Christ, all along the way. And I don't know if you know this, but it takes the whole Bible in totality to make a whole Christian. And, and the last time I checked, I don't know about you, but I know that I want to be a whole Christian. Like, I want to grow at the godly pace towards the godly peace that the Lord has set before me. And, and, I, and I believe you do too. And we all want to grow at a godly pace towards the godly purposes that the Lord of all purpose has given us. And we most definitely want to grow in, in grace and in truth and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, what we do here at Redemption City Church is we study through whole books of the Bible. 
one at a time as our faithful way of pursuing edification in God's word for the glad destination of sanctification in light of eternity. And since our church opened its doors back in June of 2019, that's what we've always strived and aimed to do. So so if you're new here to RCC and you recently started kind of hanging out with us, we completed our very first major sermon series or book series as a church this past summer through the book of Ephesians. And, and believe it or not, we studied the whole book of Ephesians from cover to cover from September 2019 all the way to June of 2021 with 37 sermons over 54 hours of faithful preaching to see all that God had for us. Folks, with Jesus, we spent almost 60 hours in sermons learning how to be amazing student learners about God and his purpose and our part in it in a book that's literally only four pages long in the Bible. And let me tell you, it was so legit because we learned what it truly means to move out of our story into, into God's story. We learned how to sit and know who God is and therefore how to, how to walk as imitators of, of Christ and, and especially in every aspect of our lives. And finally, we learned how to stand armored up as victorious Christians. So man, the word, the word, the word, the word is so alive and is so active here in our small yet active and vibrant church. This truly is a safe place and a home for those who want to become an amazing student learner or a disciple of Christ, an activator of God's perfect word. Okay, so we're moving forward now into the book of Jonah, and I'm so stoked for this opportunity and this series more, much more than you know. And Lord willing, we're going to finish the book of Jonah in anywhere between maybe four to seven sermons across about five to ten faithful hours of preaching. And then we'll spend a few weeks tackling some passages that are valuable and, and needed presently right now on our journey as, as a church here in the Beaverton Hillsboro area. But rest assured, We'll be right back taking on another book of the Bible from cover to cover. That's what we do here at Redemption City Church. Because, and I mean this with all my heart, folks, that's how you faithfully study the Bible. That's how you make much of God and his magnificent word. That's how you avoid the danger of mishandling passages out of context. And that's how you become a deepened out Christian, a, a deepened out Bible believer believing Christ-exalting Christian on the safe route of sanctification in light, folks, in light of eternity. And so I would just say it this way, the Bible changes lives, folks. It just absolutely does. What, like when it's handled faithfully and rightly and with, with soft hearts and, and open minds, the Bible always, always changes lives. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of signing up for things and joining gyms and organizations and entities that can't guarantee both change and lasting results along the way. I'm just not into it because I want and I need change in my life. And, and, and I believe most of us feel that same way. We really do want results in the things that we pursue. Okay, so, so lean in. The book we call the Bible, when it collides with your life and it is activated by the Holy Spirit, it most definitely, folks, 
It most definitely changes us day by day with with one foot in front of the other and sometimes immediately with those Christ-centered breakthrough moments, right? The Bible will change you as it leads you to imitate to imitate Jesus. Now, if you're new to the faith and you really haven't experienced that yet, man, just ask someone in our church that's been walking with the Lord for any real length of time. They're going to affirm this message because they're definitely going to tell you the Bible has changed their life and has produced lasting, folks, lasting results. Now, did you know that the book of 2 Kings chapter 22, there's this man named King Josiah, and he was in charge of Israel. And, and at that time, I want you to know that Israel was known as a godly nation. And I just want you to hold that intention, okay? It's going to be very important. King Josiah was a godly man and a godly leader at that time over a godly nation. And did you know that King Josiah once said, hey everyone, do, do you want to know what I want to do? I want to go about renovating, renovating the kingdom, and I want to start by fixing up the church. And, and at that time, they didn't call it the church, but for context, we're gonna we're gonna call it that. And he was like, "Hey, let's let's get some new stuff going on in there. Let's let's get some new sound equipment in there. Let's let's put some new carpet down. Let's renovate the bathroom while we're at it." And so they all started to get to work on the church here in second in, in second um excuse me in the book of Second Kings, cleaning up everything. And the people started to give, and they gave, and they were all contributing, and they eventually they all came to this one closet in the church that they were renovating. And we all know that one closet that every church has, right? You know, where they have that old dusty uh, Christmas reef in there and nobody's using it. And they got that old women's ministry signages that no one uses anymore. And you could probably use it maybe for like a, a lunch mat to use at a picnic, you know, that kind of a place. Okay. So they, in that closet, this dusty old closet, they pulled out a whole bunch of things, but one thing they took out in particular was this really dusty old book, and they were trying to discern what it was, and this is a true story. You got to check it out seriously in Second Kings chapter 22, and so out of this weird old dusty closet is this old dusty book, right, and this guy named Hilkiah finds it, and he opens it up, and he begins to read it, and says afterward, wow, there's some, there's some really, really cool stuff in here. Okay, so so, so then Halkiah runs over to King Josiah, and he's like, hey, KJ, you got to check this out. I found some cool candles, and I found a really cool old dusty Christmas wreath, and even there's some cool women's ministry stuff, but, but this book that I found, it's the most awesome thing ever. And so King Josiah's like, really? Well, well, read it to me. And sure enough, sure enough, Hilkiah begins to read it to King Josiah. And do you know what that book was, folks? It's what we call the Bible. It was God's word. Oh, man, that's deep. Somehow, track with me, in some way, the king of Israel, the holy, God-fearing nation of Israel, the godly leader of the godly nation, the king, the wise guy of that time, of all things, connected to God, that guy and his nation forgot about the Bible, folks, and they didn't remember it, and they didn't remember his word, and it was collecting dust inside of the church. Somehow, in some way, this nation had put the book away for so long that they had forgotten about what God 
actually had to say in it and was still saying to them, folks, in that very in that very day, the Bible was hidden, the Bible was forgotten, the Bible was tucked away and unused, and it was collecting a massive amount of dust inside of a church, folks. That's, that's deep. But check this out. When King Josiah began to hear even more of the perfect and uninterrupted word of God, he began to weep, and he began to, he began to cry, and then he began to cry more and more, and then he began to worship he the God of the universe louder day. and louder, and eventually he ripped his shirt with the sign of repentance, which back then when you would rip your shirt, it was a sign of great emotion and seriousness. And he repented. He said, God, I'm sorry. So, so then King Josiah says, what in the world are we doing? And more importantly, what in the world am I doing as the leader? He said, man, we aren't doing anything that God is saying to do in his word. Therefore, we need to change. Folks, we need to change our trajectory. And then all of a sudden, King Josiah starts going on a rampage. He starts changing everything in light of Scripture in a positive and beautiful ways. He starts to call out all the idols and the statues that are in his nation, and he condemned them, and he had them all torn down. And guess what happened next? You ready? He started putting up faithful, faithful monuments of, Jesus, of, of God all over the place. Man, it's a great, great story. Folks, it was like an alarm, a very serious alert type alarm situation went off in his head and in his heart when he saw the word of God become alive again in his heart. Like, like have you ever read the word of God or listened to a faithful sermon from the word of God and all of a sudden, boom! The Holy Spirit kind of highlights things, highlights something from that Bible or, or from that sermon, and, and all of a sudden it collides with your life and in your head and your heart in an intimate way, like I know I have. And then during this collision, you feel the Lord saying to you, hey, hey, Brandon, we got to deal with this issue that's inside of you. We got to do something about it. You need to let go of this thing, and you need to start picking this other thing back up, folks. Only the Word of God has the authority to come into your life and tell you what needs to be worked on and what needs to be addressed and what needs to be put away and what needs to be picked up. Are you tracking? Like, it reminds me of a story not too long ago in Nebraska about an amber alert that had went off warning neighboring states that a young mom and her two-year-old child had been abducted. And, and this is a true story. You may have heard of it. And that mom mom was drugged and put into the back of a van and was tied up in her house. And the man had taken her two-year-old child to a restaurant to get something to eat before he planned to run and leave the whole state of Nebraska. And at that restaurant, a random person just happened to be sitting there next to them when the Amber Alert thing went off. And, and immediately, the sound of the alert jarred him on his phone and caused him to look intently at what was on his screen. And quickly, the man noticed that the young child across from him at this restaurant looked exactly like the child in the picture. So, so as you can imagine, what do you think happened? What do you think happened next? Well, of course the man called 911. He was like, I found the kid. I found the kid. I found the kid. And, and the two-year-old, the story goes on, the two-year-old was returned safely to his home and the mom praised Christ 
was rescued. Like, like, can't you see? When that amber alert went off, it put a man at special attention to be extra careful and to look around with great circumspection. And it was that circumspection and that alarm and the authority of the amber alert being real and authoritative that increased both his awareness, folks, and his posture, which was ready to act and ready to respond. The authority and the seriousness of that amber alarm allowed that man to better perceive the danger and the responsibility that was set before him. And had he ignored that amber alert and not taken it seriously, that child and her mom most likely, most, most likely would be dead. Oh man, the implications of that church family is so deep because I say all of that to say this. Right now, we're transitioning into a new book of the Bible, right? Okay, so I don't know what really keeps you here at RCC. I just don't. I don't know what you love most about Redemption City Church. Like, I don't know what your main pull or desire is. Maybe it's intimate in small community, or maybe it's the opportunity to make a big impact in a small church that needs a lot of help. But but let me tell you the truth. What I want all of us to be kept by most here at RCC is an opportunity to be lovers, lovers, lovers of God's Word. I want us to be lovers of God's Word in such a way that we treat the Bible like a joyful, productive, amber alert type system that we're ready to respond to what we see in the text. Even every time, folks, every single time we enter God's word, he sends us compassionate, Christ-centered amber alerts with total authority so that we might perceive the real danger around us. We're in a Christian war. We learned that and our responsibility of how to respond to it as a soldiers. Folks, the Bible is so alive and it should cause us to increase our awareness of, of who God is and therefore who we are and ultimately what God desires us to be and what he desires us to do every time we encounter his word. Like, does that happen for you? So if you want a successful life, I want you to truly consider with me what Joshua says in the first chapter of his book. Okay, so let's, let's put that on the screen right now. It's, it's so, so important. Here it is, verse, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. The book of the law, we, that would be the word of God, our Bible, okay? The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Oh man, that's legit. Because what Joshua was saying is that when the word of God is at the center of your heart and you meditated on it day and night and day and night, when you truly, truly seek God's word with your whole heart and you do what it says from a place of genuineness and sincerity, you will find radical success, folks. 
radical success in your life. Like, listen, it really matters who's talking here. It's, jo it's Joshua, folks, not your average friend at work. You know, that one guy at work, Mr. or Mrs. All Opinions, and they have no facts. No, this is Joshua, Old Testament Joshua. You know, the one that had seen his people struggle in the wilderness for 40 years walking around in rebellion from God. He saw what that looked like to be in rebellion from God and to not take God's word seriously. This is the same Joshua who had seen his great leader and pastor and shepherd in Moses rise, but folks, and eventually fall right before his very eyes. And that's a very big reality. I told you, make the Bible come to life so you don't miss the deepness of it. It would be like whoever you look up to right now in the faith, falling and ending their life, folks. Ending their life in sin. It's that Joshua who's seen his people struggle in sin, who's seen his leader fall into sin, and he's amber alerting me. And he's amber alerting you. And he's saying, guys, you really, really need to stay close to the book of God, to the book, the word of God. I just watched my mentor and my pastor and my shepherd in Moses go down. You got to be careful. Okay, so, so let me just ask you a question. Like, can you imagine living a life for God in his name, yet not knowing his word? Like, because you're living a life for God right now in his name, whether you believe it and whether you know it or not. Like, do you know the book? Do you know your Bible? Like, do you really, really know the word of God? Like, is the word of God exciting to you? Just be faithful and answer that in your, in your heart. When you're making decisions, do you reflect and do you think and do you pray upon stories like King Josiah and, and King Asa and Jesus at the Lord's Supper and things like that? Like, is the biblical narratives coming to life for you and showing up for you in your everyday life? Is the Word of God and the stories in the Bible and the principles and the precepts available to you you when you need it most in your time of storms and trials and circumstances. Because when I find, I can just tell you for me, when I finally heard faithful preaching in a way that made sense to my head and my heart, I was like, oh man, this is life-changing, sin-eradicating stuff. And I want more and more and more. And so I went back for more of God's Word and more of God's Word and more of God's Word. You get it? And then I began to share God's Word more with my wife. And then I began to share it more with my friends. And then I began to share it more with my community. And, and more and more and more of God I desired. And those who were attached to my life Begin to see that in me. Folks, I just couldn't get enough of God's word. And eventually, I just began to devour the gospels over and over and over again. It was legit. And man, I just want to encourage you right now to become a lover. A lover of God's, of God's word. Radically, radically dedicated to the precepts of God by way of application. Okay? Like, not just by the way of theology and abstract knowledge that's up in your head, but by way of intimacy from within your heart as you think about your Savior. Like, like, do you remember being on your, if you're married, do you remember being on your wedding day or perhaps on the honeymoon and you kind of looked over at your new spouse and you thought to yourself, wow, 
we're married now. And I better figure out how to get to know my wife even more. I need to get to know my husband even, even deeper. And, and after that amazing cruise or that trip to Hawaii or that special getaway, you dreamed together, you talked together as you got your first house and you worked hard to discover more and more and more about each other, right? Like even though you were married and you already made your commitment and you had already spent a vast amount of time together to get up to the point of being married, you still wanted to get deeper and you wanted to know each other deeper and you wanted more and more and more. And, and if everything goes right within a healthy marriage, that anthem of wanting to know each other more and deeper, it never ends, does it? No, like no matter how long you're married, there's always another door of more that we're discovering about our spouse. Isn't that, isn't that true? And, and folks, that's how we're supposed to approach our relationship with God and his word and our relationship with him. There's always another door of more for us to explore. Though, though many of us know it, our, our love for God should cause us to want to know more about our God and his thoughts every single day. Folks, our love for God and our allegiance to him should cause us to want to spend crazy amount of times with him and our family in Christ. Okay, okay, because we have been given, and I've said this before, a privileged position and opportunity. It's not an obligation, but it is an opportunity to get to know him and to love him and to understand him more than those who have come before us. We've been given a privileged position. We are in the time and the period of patience. Okay, so let me give you some biblical and kingdom parameters alongside a few life application deadlines. That's right. There's a life application deadline that is currently presiding over your life. Are you ready? There's a deadline of your life. It's in the text. and I'm going to present it to you. Here it is. You need to know the Bible and learn who God is and apply it to your life by the deadline of death. <laughs> okay? It's that simple, folks. It's a lifestyle. We are to spend the rest of our days accomplishing that goal all the way up until the point death arrives for us. People should look at you from the world and automatically say audibly, man, you're kind of weird. You're just a little bit different. And, and you should regularly respond by saying, oh, oh yeah, I, I know that. It's because I know God and I, and I submit to him and I, and I do what he says and I live my days by the book and I don't allow myself to get off to get off the hook because we live in a culture today, folks, that is surrounded and permeating with biblical illiteracy. Like, hello, this is, this is a reality. We're obsessed with having sermonettes for fancy, squeaky clean Christianettes. But, but that's not the gospel, and that's not what Jesus has called us to. But as a result of this biblical illiterate time that we're living in, we don't want to read the Bible anymore. Yeah, churches don't want to read the Bible. We don't want to get our hands dirty in the tension points of the Bible. We don't want our children to really step into situations that may involve necessary danger. Or we, and we don't want our families to risk their comfort. Not, not really. And all this comes from biblical illiteracy and complacency and not understanding our purpose and God's protection for those who submit to it. Folks, even for me as your pastor, I read a lot of the Bible 
So each day I have to really choose to lean in with my affections. You tracking with me? I have to really, really commit and choose and ask the Holy Spirit to help me show myself as an approved workman who does not need to be ashamed as I rightly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, right? So, so we all have a decision to truly, truly believe that all scripture is breathed out and inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine and correction and, and reproof right? We all have a decision to decide if we truly, truly believe that this is the way that the children of God become thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 through 17. So, so what about you? Do you really believe that for yourself personally? Not, not him, not her, just you. Do you believe that? Because I'm offering you an amazing opportunity right now as we get ready to study and march through the book of Jonah to be radically committed to God's word. But Pastor Brandon, I, wasn't, I haven't been committed. I've been up and down and I make commitments and I don't keep them. It doesn't matter. Right now, you have a radical opportunity to say this time I'm armored up and I'm going to commit to take God's word more seriously. You, you have an opportunity to commit alongside me as your pastor to become a lover of scripture, amazing student learner of the Bible, because I mean it, folks. We are living in a culture with biblical illiteracy. And, and this really reminds me of a young Cajun boy named William, who was a zealous Christian who lived way down in the bios. And, and one day he approached the pastor at the new church he was going to, and he asked if he could serve in the church in some way. And the pastor simply asked him, hey, William, okay, like, can you read and can you write? And William admitted that he didn't take school too seriously when he was in school. It wasn't a top priority because he was too busy catching gators and, and making gumbo all the time. And so the pastor followed up and said, okay, well, well, at least tell me what your favorite story is in the Bible. Do you know your Bible well? And, and the Cajun boy, William, was like, and he put a big smile on his face, like, Yes, sir. I'm really good in the scriptures. I'd love to tell you one of my favorite stories. I know my Bible from limb to limb. Okay, and so and so then the pastor asked him, okay, well, William, how about you tell me your favorite Bible story? And, and William replied and said that his favorite Bible story was when Jesus fed the 5,000. And the pastor, approving of such a great story, said, well, share that story, young man. I'd love to hear how you think through it. And William proceeded, the young Cajun boy proceeded and shared the story saying, well, okay, well, once there was this man named Jesus, and he was a very, very special man, and he sent his disciples out two by two to do ministry on their own. And, and the story of feeding 5,000 picks up when they got back from Babylon after fighting in the great battle of Jericho. And they were very, very tired and, and asked if they could eat the Lord's Supper before they helped the hungry 5,000 people. And, and Jesus was very, very upset with them, so he went to the other side of the mountain. He was stressing out so much about their attitude that he started sweating blood down his forehead. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus spit on the fish and on the bread, and behold, there was enough food to feed everyone, and now the blind children could see. And there were 12 baskets left at the end, and enough wine for everyone in Egypt. And the people only worshipped for a minute because they became forgetful creatures. They had forgotten that they came out of the city of Gomorrah. But in the end, God forgave them anyway and told his disciples that the next mission was to head to Damascus to meet up with the apostle Nicodemus. Now, now listen. 
most of us know the real story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And what William shared is most definitely not the biblical accurate story about that reality. But the, here's, here's the situation. So many Christians, although I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek in this moment, are not far, folks, from this ridiculous account regarding how they understand the Bible. Folks, we are living in a day and in an age inside of our very own churches of great biblical illiteracy. So how can we possibly live for Christ? How can we submit to Christ telling biblical accounts and believing anything that everyone says like William from the bios. And, and the answer is we can't. We simply can't. We most definitely won't get far like that. We can't live like that. We can't grow well like that. And we can't lead others to Christ in a lasting way like that at all. But, but let me tell you something so encouraging, so exciting, and so redemptive. You see, when King Josiah finally read the book and he dusted that old thing off, when he really, really started to take the words of God seriously again, things changed for him, folks. Things first changed within him, and then things changed for those around him. I'm going to say it to you again. First, things changed for King Josiah. And then things started changing for those around King Josiah. So, so if you want to see revival, oh man, because we're about to study the book of Jonah, and we're going to see a beautiful picture of, of what revival looks like in a culture that went completely bonkers. So if you want to see revival in your city and community, like we're about to read about, let me just tell you right now, the most important thing you need to know about how to get a revival started in your church and in your community and in your city, folks, it always starts with you alone. It starts right with you and your heart. The most important thing you need when praying for a revival in your city and in your church community is a circle that you draw around yourself conjoined with an earnest prayer to the God of the universe saying, Lord, may you start this revival right here within my heart. That's, that's all you need to worry about, family and friends. Are you tracking yourself? And I'm not kidding. Don't worry about leading a revival over here and, and, and reforming this church over here. Hey, just radically set your life up to experience, to experience God right within your very own life. And, and don't you dare wait till it's convenient or, or cool or, or sexy or culturally acceptable. Like, don't wait for your husband or your wife or your children to want to do it with you. Not when it comes to your relationship with God. Don't wait for your neighbors or your friends or your relatives or your school to give you an approval. You just draw a mighty spirit-filled circle around yourself and you declare to the Lord with an earnest prayer, I'm all in, God. May you change in my life. Start your revival in me. And pay attention. Whatever God does from that point with your offering and that earnest prayer is completely and totally up to him. You tracking? Like how God uses you and your life and those around you is totally 
totally his prerogative. You just need to make sure that you are letting that spiritual amber alert system go off in your heart every time you open up the Word of God. And, and you do that so that you become better positioned, right, to have great circumspection and careful consideration about the things that God is wanting you to prioritize according to Scripture, particularly, folks, concerning your life and the world around you as you learn the Bible book by book. Okay, so so I want everyone to have their Bibles open right now to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. Because what all of what I've said so far is aiming. I'm trying to get you to whet your appetite for Scripture as we prepare to faithfully start our march through the glorious book of the Bible over the next couple months. Because Jonah, folks, is legit. And what I want you to notice right away as you look down in your Bible or on the screen in the text is the very first word in this whole book because it's critical. Let, let's put verse 1 on the screen right now. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Do you see it? It says, now. That's the very first word. Now listen, that's not the way an author normally starts a book let alone a story. You don't start with words like now, and, or therefore. You don't start right in the middle of a thought when you're starting a book unless unless your book is a mini-story or a segment or a part of a grand meta-narrative, meaning one large overarching story. Folks, the Bible is God's story. Every book of the Bible is God's story. It's not our own. I'm sorry if this is breaking news for you, but, but you need to know this right now. The Bible is not primarily about us. It's about God. The, the Ephesians series, remember that? It was titled, Moving from Our Story into Whose Story? Into God's Story. Do you see the trajectory and the aim in that sermon series title? It's towards God. And, and the Jonah series is titled, A Story About God's Compassion and Patience and Our Opportunity to Join Him in It. Do you see our opportunity to join God in His plans? And you better believe the next series after Jonah will be titled God's Story, etc., 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 in some way, in some shape, or fashion. And right here in the book of Jonah from the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. Get with it. Because right here in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, right here in verse 1, we have God, the God of the universe. He's invading the scene. The one and true God always shows up for us, praise Christ. And, and know this, we don't have an Old Testament God and a, a New Testament God. There's not two gods here. There's just one. Like the same God that we lifted up in, in the Ephesians series, he is reigning and ruling right here as we study him in the book of Jonah. As a matter of fact, if we were to zoom out from a 5,000 foot perspective to consider why there's an Old Testament and a New Testament and why God seems to act one way in over here, and then apparently he's acting a different way over there, it's because he's perfect. God's perfect in everything he does. He's doing something in both sides of the Testaments. He is holy, and he is right, and he is true, and he is good. And there's no one, no one like our God, praise Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, and this includes Jonah, God is screaming, I'm, I'm perfect. perfect. I'm a 10 out of a 10. 
praise Christ. And, and when you really start to learn and deepen out about that, of how to maneuver around the Old Testament scripture, and I'm going to show you how to do that in our very first book study in the Old Testament through Jonah. Man, the Old Testament gets legit and exciting and so encouraging for your life. And, and all throughout the New Testament, God not only demonstrates that he's perfect, but he also demonstrates, folks, that he's patient, that he's kind, that he's loving and gracious and merciful, doesn't he? And, and all throughout the Old Testament, God focuses primarily on demonstrating that he's wrathful and that he's just and that he's serious and that he's relentless, right? No, no, that's that's not true. Don't believe that hype anymore. But but what's so very sad, and I just want you to lean into this, what's so very sad is that is usually the conclusion even mature Christians, folks, come to. We're living in biblically illiterate times. Folks, we even have some seminaries teaching their students to think through the Bible as that as two separate testaments in a way that actually presents two different gods. We have this false notion, and dare I say fear, that God is perfect and, and sinless and blameless in both the Old Testament and New Testament, but the New Testament exclusively tells us about God's compassion and his grace and his forgiveness. But folks, listen to me. That's not true. And not only is that not true, it's, it's dangerously it's dangerously false because the true story is that God is perfect in both testaments and demonstrates compassion and forgiveness and justice and seriousness in both testaments as well. You just need faithful preaching to increase your biblical literacy so you can better understand your Bible because God is declaring throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that he's a both and God and that he's perfect at it. He's just perfect. In other words, God is saying, I am perfect, and I cannot adjust my perfection from one testament to the other, but I love you so much that I'm going to adjust your lack of perfection and do something about it so you can join me and be perfect as well. Oh man, he who knew no sin, namely our God, became sin for me and you so that we might become his righteousness and the perfection of God. That, that is deep. Good night. So, so God is illustrating all throughout the Old Testament that he is not like us and that he's not messing around about his holiness. It's what he's showing us. He wants us to know that he's up here and, and we're down here and that his ways are not like our ways and his thoughts are not like our thoughts. And, and he's offering us great compassion and he's pointing all throughout the Old Testament of his compassion that's right now available to those people in the Old Testament and he has compassion ready to be delivered in the New Testament in the form of his son. And Jesus comes and he serves us in our needs. Just, just check this out in verse uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It's legit. It's, it's on your screen. And here's what the word of the Lord says. Apostle Paul speaking right here, uh, inspired by God. For while we were still weak, wow, not when we were strong and perfect and doing all the right things, but while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. God, not just Jesus of the New Testament, God, Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, the God of the Old Testament. But God shows his love for us. This is a new Testament picture of God's compassion in that while we were still sinners, Christ, a New Testament picture of Jesus' seriousness, died for us. Oh man, that that is deep. Like, can't you see? God displays New Testament compassion and love, and Jesus displays Old Testament seriousness. It's a both-and situation, folks. And basically, Paul is saying in this passage of Romans, Jesus came to rescue us and to deliver us for God as his spotless bride. And as a result, we became perfected in Christ. Okay, so the story of Jonah finds itself colliding itself, illustrating what Paul is communicating right here in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, regarding God's compassion to save us while we were still sinners. That's what we're going to see in the book of Jonah. Because the name Jonah, you ready for this? It literally means dove. Jonah means dove. Oh man, I mean the fact that Jonah's name literally translates to dove and the the picture of a dove if you don't know represents the picture of the holy spirit and the and the picture of the holy spirit is an active picture of the message of jesus christ left for us as jesus went back to the right hand of the father and the picture of jesus is a picture of god's kindness and gentleness and salvation in the form of flesh man i had to meditate on that reality for a while the name Jonah, from that perspective, is, is quite mind-blowing. So, so here's Jonah, 800 years prior to Christ, during the Syrian and the Babylonian reign. You got Isaiah, you got guys like Amos and Obadiah, and, and guys like this on the scene. And, and God says, you know what? I don't want you to miss my point and, and misrepresent who I am, so I'm going to paint a picture through the events of Jonah and a nation about some of my most important characteristics and qualities. Okay, so with that anthem set by the God of the universe in the book of Jonah, here enters Jonah, this short four-chapter book across two pages in the Bible. And it starts with this question that I have for you. Here's, here's the starting question. It's on your screen. What character or person does God most focus on in this story throughout the book of Jonah? Who obviously takes center stage? Man, that's a really important question. We're so familiar with the book of Jonah. We've, well, most of us have been around church and we've, we've read about Jonah. And, and really, what is the main focus? Who's the main character that, that God chooses to focus on in the book of Jonah? And I bet some of you are thinking that perhaps the main character in this story is, is the fish, right? And I mean, after all, the fish is literally named four times in chapter two, and, and the chapter is only one page long. And that's a lot of focus for a very short book. And though that's a reasonable guess, and I see why some of you immediately probably thought when you think of Jonah, you think about the whale or the fish, I want you to know that the fish is not the main character that God focuses on in this book. 
It's just not. And, and though that's tough for some of us because we've been conditioned to think about the fish in the well all the time. I mean, just let's just be honest. How many movies and DVDs and Bible lessons focus on that fish disproportionately? Just Google right now the book of Jonah and you're going to see almost every cover art focusing on the well or the fish. Man, that fish really, really does get to be the disproportionate superstar in the book of Jonah. So today I just want to be faithful as we start this journey to let you know that the fish is not the primary focus that God has for us. Okay, but what about Nineveh? Those of you who know the story, what about Nineveh? For all those more kind of deepened and more mature um, Christians at our church that have been walking with Jesus, and you're a deep biblical thinker and studier of God's word, is it not truly more about Nineveh and their brokenness? Like, did you know that Nineveh makes it on the pages of the book of Jonah nine times? That's more than double the fish. Like, that's an awful lot of focus points in a very short <clears throat> A very short book. So if you wrote Nineveh as your answer, I just say that you are heading in the right direction. But, but nevertheless, you'd still be wrong. Truly, God is not primarily focusing on the Ninevites either. Okay, so, so what else could the book of Jonah and God primarily be focusing on when it comes to the main, the main character? Okay, so, so obviously most of you have probably figured out by now that this book is about Jonah. Hello? I mean, after all, Jonah is mentioned 18 times in this, in this book. Like, that's a lot. And if you didn't notice, the book is named after him. That's a lot of times. 18 times is more than the fish and Nineveh combined. Folks, out of 48 verses total in this very short book, Jonah is mentioned 18 times. So that's genuinely not hard to see as you learn how to read in the scriptures. So if that's you and you wrote down some of the, wrote down the words that the main character is Jonah, unfortunately, I want you to know that you would still you'd still be wrong. And I know that's crazy, right? Not even Jonah, though the book is named after him, is who God is primarily focusing on as the main character of the story. It's it's not the fish, it's not the Ninevites, and it's not Jonah. Lean in. Okay, so while the character of Jonah and the well and Nineveh are all important aspects of this story, we're about to leap, um, leap and dive deep into, I want you to know that the main character that God focuses on in this historical story is himself. Praise Christ. I told you earlier, this is God's story. And make no mistake, that's why the book opens up with the earth-shattering battle cry, Now the word of the Lord came. Are you tracking? Now the word of the Lord has come. Like, can't you see? God is declaring right here in verse 1 that it all starts with him alone. He breathes life into our situations. He initiates new stories and new journeys every single day of our lives. He's behind it all, folks. And, and just to provide a little more evidence to this argument that I'm making, I want you to know that the character of God in this story is referenced in this book 38 times. Count them up. In a book that only contains 
48 verses, the God of the universe is mentioned 38 times. Oh man, that's so deep and it's so productive for us to camp out on right now as we prepare to make, make much of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, check this out. The well is mentioned 8% of the time in this book. Nineveh is mentioned 19% of the time in this book. Jonah is mentioned 38% of the time in this book. Yet God, folks, our God is mentioned 80% of the time in this book. 38 times God draws attention to himself in the book of Jonah in order that we as the readers and those who were hearing the accounts of what happened with Jonah during that time would say this, oh yeah, I know the story of Jonah and it's not about the fish, meaning the circumstances and the trials and the experiences that happen in our lives, especially from our sin. It's, it's not about Nineveh, meaning our needs and disproportionate focus on the world and humanity and our part in it. It's, it's not primarily about Jonah, the prophet, the man, or, or ourselves and, and what we need and what we want and what we want to pursue and things like that. It's so that we would all say, I got this. The book of Jonah is about God, meaning the one who reigns supreme over all three of those realities that we just mentioned. So, so let me say this to you again, and hopefully I have your full attention now as the amazing student learners that you are becoming. If you really want to see a revival started within your family and within your church and within your community and within your city, then this is going to set you free. Okay, are you ready? The first thing that you need to do if you want to see restoration and redemption and revival in your home and in your community and your family and in your church is to say, Lord, I know that this is not about me. This is not going to be about me. And one second later, tell that to yourself again because you probably are already forgetting it. And I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. That's how much we are wired to obsess disproportionately on ourselves. And do you know what starts to happen when you actually start to believe the truth that life is about God, that the Bible's about God, that your life's about God, that your family's about God, that your marriage is about God, and that your church is about God? Do you know what happens when you really, really start to believe that truth? When that starts to become something that you internalize and you start to conceptualize in your heart. All of a sudden, you start to become the best husband in the whole world, and you start to become the best father in the whole world, and you start to become the best mother and the best wife and the best employee and the best employer and the best daughter and the best son and the best citizen and the best neighbor that you can possibly become. Listen, the moment you convince your head and heart that it's not about you, you start to become the best volunteer, and you start to build the best church that you can possibly become. However, as soon as we start to forget that and we start making it about ourselves again, it's going to be real tough uphill hiking from that point because everything, folks, everything is about God. And we just get the privilege and the opportunity to be a part of his story. We just get to be an extra in his movie of life. And we get to be glad participators in this story to do some crazy, cool things with Jesus because God's story has been going on before you. 
And I just want you to know that. And, and it's going on now within you, whether you know it or like it or not. And it's going to go on most definitely beyond you when you're long and gone and forgotten. And that was true for Mr. Jonah as well. Okay, so, so with that being said, I want you to know that Jonah was a prophet to Is. Uh, I want you to know that Jonah was a prophet from Israel. And, and what's so uniquely interesting is that while all the other prophets of Israel had, had a message primarily for Israel, meaning those who were God's chosen people, or as we would say, for the Christian people, Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament called by God in the Bible with a message that was not primarily for the Christian community, but for the pagan culture and the people, meaning it was for the secular world and the unbeliever. He's the only prophet in the Old Testament with that calling. Wow. That, and that truth is important for us to not overlook today and throughout this series as we start to march through the book of Jonah. Because most of us as Christians, we, we think often about what our part is in the church and amongst our brothers and sisters and how we can serve faithfully within the safe confines of a Christian culture and a Christian community. We pray and we obsess over things and decisions like, should I do music? Where should I serve? Can I afford to give 10%? Should I show up to this event? Should I not go to that event? And so on and so forth. But, but what if God is saying, hey, I'm so, so glad that you're a part of the church. Like, like, like that truly, that's, that's awesome. And I want you to do that. You, you should be a part of that. But there's actually also some people that are outside of the church that needs to get my message delivered to them. What, like, what if God is telling me and he's telling you, there's some people that are not just inside the church, but they're outside of the church that need you to share not only the gospel message about me, but they need you to share your very life and your family as well. Because whether we realize it or not, God has placed each of us directly in our very own modern-day Nineveh, folks. Today, right now, Nineveh is our modern-day nation of America. Are you tracking? It's our very neighbors and our co-workers and our attachments and our everyday situations. And we have to understand that God placed us where we're at on purpose, with a purpose, because he's the Lord of intentionality and all purpose. So, so the next time you start freaking out and you say to yourself, God, I want a new job. These people around me are so crazy and sinful. I don't want to be around them anymore. Maybe God is saying back to you, duh, I know where they're at. And I'm the one that gave you this job. Maybe you're there and I've placed you there for a reason. And, and I'll tell you what, that is most definitely a need right within our own city for the love of Jesus Christ to permeate and to spread in places that are carrying a vast amount of darkness. There's a great need right here for the people in our city to know the truth of God and to then one day become disciples themselves so they can be extenders and sharers and ambassadors and imitators of God's word as well. Like, pay attention, why in all the heavens and the earth do you believe you're here why are you here why am i here why do you think god has given you spe specifically the spouse that you have why has god specifically given you the positions that you have right now in your life and in your jobs and in your opportunities what does god want to do through you based upon your history okay Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your minds so clear. 
You see, when I was about 30 years old, I had this Q&A session with the Lord, and I asked him, Lord, you are sovereign. You, you could have stopped me at any point in my season of deep, deep rebellion, but you didn't, and you, and you let me just kind of go off the rails into sin, and, and I took this thing too far in that season, and I, and I, and I didn't stop in that type of corruption over there in, in that year. And, and I said, Lord, why did you let me do the things that you that I did Lord why didn't you intervene and the Lord quieted my heart and spoke to me through the Bible and various stories and, and passages as I studied God's word and 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 he said Brandon I'm going to use you how I want to use you now see how I'm going to work it for my good and and I saw in scripture the Lord saying Brandon can't you see I've been developing within you a sensitivity to the people in the very same situations that you struggled in and failed miserably in in all those years. And, and I'm going to equip you with power, spirit-filled power and perspective and mercy and grace towards people that others, Brandon, others may not understand despite their four years of Bible college and the PhD they have in in theology. Man, that was a big that was a big eye-opening moment for me when my Christ-centered headlights came on. It was as if the Lord was saying, "But Brandon, you are my son, and I need you to understand that there are broken and sinners out here, and now you are equipped to understand them at the street and experiential level because you're going to be able to understand them at the heart, and, and you're going to be able to understand them at the darkness level, and, and you're going to be able to understand them at the hopeless and the melancholy level, and, and you're going to be able to understand them at the suffering and the sorrowful level, and you're going to be able to understand them at the shame. And at the sinful level. But, but guess what else? This is what the Lord is saying. But guess what else, Brandon? You're also going to understand them at the massively successful and the prosperous and the victorious level. You're also going to understand them at the redemption level. Brandon, I've allowed you. This is God talking. I've allowed you to experience all these things in your life the highs and the lows and the successes and the failures because I want to use you to make much of me my son and, and I want you to benefit others and I want you to you and I want to use them to also help reshape you and refine you and transform you into a man with enduring joy and peace in an unpeaceful world and folks let me just be honest with you that conversation with the Lord in my study time as I was just deepening out in the Word of God. It just changed. It changed my life. Okay, so, so here's my question to each and every person that's listening today. What's your story? What's your testimony? What have you been through? Like, like maybe your story is that God, through His grace, allowed you to avoid much of this street-level experience of life altogether. Maybe you didn't have to get stuck and stalled and tripped up and trapped up in a bunch of sin. And, and for you, maybe God allowed you to avoid many of these trappings and catastrophes in your life. And now God wants to use you as a beacon of light and hope to those who have similar stories just like you so they can be confident and, and, and strong in the Lord by the power of His might to know they can live courageously and without neutrality as they mature in Christ. So, so what I'm saying is that whether God is using you because of your story or God is using you despite your story, we're all witnesses for Christ when we're born again. 
period. Like, my story is not better than your story, and, and your story is not better than my story. No one's better or worse. We're all equal in value, yet we're different in our abilities to reach various demographics and people groups in various life scenarios. But make no mistake about it, we all have a part to play. It all counts, folks. And, and that's really, really good news because real life is happening right now outside of our church. You got to wake up. Real life is happening right now as we're listening to this sermon. And people right in our neighborhood need the message of Jesus Christ. And, and just like Jonah was called to go far away to a people and a nation who were so far from God, to tell them about God, we are called to go to people who are far from God, folks, right within our very own, our very own city. Now, I just want to be honest with you. The book of Jonah has often come under great and disproportionate scrutiny, particularly in theological and seminary circles. And I don't understand it. Like people, people often talk about Jonah and say, I don't know if I can believe all this stuff in the book of Jonah, especially about that whale on the fish thing. This story is a tough pill to swallow. This story is kind of out there in Hollywood la-la candy land, if you ask me. I don't believe Jonah is a historical account. Instead, it's a mess. Metaphor. It's a simile. It's a symbolic character of Jonah based off the historical prophet of Jonah who was mentioned in 2 Kings and blah, 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 blah. blah. Okay, so, so the first thing I want you to know is, and this is definitely very, very important. Are you ready? I don't care. I don't care what your conclusion is about Jonah being historical or metaphorical. Like, I'm dead serious. I have important things to pastor into our hearts here at RCC so we can live well for Christ. Are you tracking with me? I made a radical resolve to myself and before the God of the universe that our church would not be a church or a community that got distracted with meaningless things. And I plan to keep that promise. Now, now, now. With that being said, let me make my faithful argument for why, uh, for how we're going to think through the Book of Jonah here at RCC. Okay, so if you've made it, think with me, track with me, think, be logical. If you've made it through 31 books of the Bible to get to this point where you first started saying that you can't believe that Jonah is a historical account. Like, 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 I just want you to know that within the first 31 books that came before Jonah that you've been reading, you know, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, so on and so forth. I just want you to know that there are some stories in those books of the Bible that are dramatically more off the wall than the story of Jonah. Like, listen, okay, okay, check this out. There's this woman who has a quart of olive oil and she's gonna die, right? And, and God tells her just to keep pouring it into more and more jars and vessels. And so the woman keeps pouring it and pouring it and pouring it and pouring it. And guess what? The jar never runs out and she's able to just keep pouring it and pouring it and it never ever runs out until she pays off all of her debt to the debtors and her whole her debt is paid off. Miracle. And, and then God tells this other man um, with the stick, hey, throw your stick down on the floor, and when you do that, it's going to become a snake. And then the man throws the, the, the stick down, and it becomes a snake. Are you kidding me? Okay, and then God tells this other guy he's going to pick him up in a chariot of fire. A fireball is going to pick him up and take him home. 
Are you kidding me? And you may be thinking, well, did that guy have a special fireproof suit on? And the answer is, no, he didn't. God literally picks him up in a fireball, a chariot filled with fiery flames going everywhere, and took him home, and the man was completely untouched by fire. Mystical, right? Totally miraculous. And the Bible, I'm not done. The Bible tells us in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, that God spoke, and because he spoke, all things exist. Weird. So if you're tracking with me, what I'm saying is the Bible is filled with crazy stories. Yet for some reason, this story, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah in particular, is constantly, constantly under trial in both secular and pagan circles, as well as unhelpful Christian, I mean, uh, unhelpful Christ-distracting theological circles. I don't get that. And what's so funny to me is that this is the one actual story out of everything I just mentioned that actually could have happened historically even without a miraculous intervention. Did you know that? Because there are wells and fishes big enough in our sea today, even today, that could accidentally, or sovereignty of God for how we think through things as Christians, swallow a man whole keep a man in its digestive chambers for three days and barf him up on a seashore. That's like the one thing that wouldn't take a miracle to occur. And and not only is that possible, you're not ready for this, not only is that possible, but guess what? It actually happened before in modern day history, not just with Jonah. Did you know that? Oh, man, this is legit. Okay, so there was this man named James Bartley. You can look him up. Who was doing a solo expedition off the Falkland Islands. Google it. His boat was attached um, excuse me, attacked by a whale, and he landed inside the whale's mouth in modern-day history. And the story goes on that he ended up surviving the whole ordeal and was carved out of the whale's stomach by his friends. True story. Folks, they didn't even know he was missing when he was gone. They simply began skinning the whale because of the hot weather and that would have been rotting the whale's fish. The whale had died and they saw the, they saw the whale. They're like, man, it's going to stink up the whole area. So they were cutting the fish and that's how they accidentally found him. Okay, so reporting says that, um, that excuse me, reports were that he was in the whale for approximately 36 hours. Hmm, that's that's crazy. And it was also said that his skin, right? And they had they 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 photographed they 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 took pictures of him. His skin had been bleached white by the male uh, by the whale's gastric juices as a result, and he also was blind. However, this this man James Bartley survived and remarkably returned to work three weeks later under limited and new modified work responsibilities. Now, I want you to know that James Bartley did die 18 years later, and his tombstone in Gloucester to this day says, James Bartley, a modern day Jonah. So, so folks, this miracle about this miracle story about Jonah in the fish's belly, and make no mistake, it most definitely was a God-breathed miracle, is one of the most likely things to actually happen in comparison to all the other crazy things throughout the Old Testament story. Because the other things that God does in the Old Testament, God just pulls them literally out of thin air. He just does it. God says, he spoke, stars suspended. He just pulls it out of thin air. Like, like he starts creating planets and 
ecosystems by simply speaking the words. Are you tracking? So, so I look at people who are challenged by Jonah being a historical account, um, both those outside the church and those who get stuck in their head inside of seminaries, and I'm like, really? This is most definitely not the right story to choose not to believe. This is one of the most easiest stories to swallow, no pun intended. And, and by the way, keeping God as the target, having a fish spit up Jonah on the seashore of Nineveh is so like our God, folks. Our God is so intentional. Now, now watch this because I'm about to dive deep and preach this simply yet profoundly. Okay, eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Did you know that the Ninevites worshipped false gods? Did you know that? And did you know that their primary false god was a creature that was a half man and half fish? And not only that, not only that, but the half man and half fish primary false god that they believed in skin was ghostly white just like james bartley who lived not that long ago in modern day history in the falkland islands okay so jonah's skin would have been bleached white track with me by the fish's digestive juices are you tracking and so when jonah came onto the seashore and was spit out of the fish or the well's mouth and started preaching do you want to take a wild guess at what the ninevite people would have done immediately what do you think they would have all stopped what they were doing and they would all stopped what they were saying and they would have listened immediately and that's exactly what the Ninevites did, folks. Folks, Jonah came looking like their false primary god, bleached white out of a fish so that people who are far from God would have the best opportunity to hear a message directly from our God. Oh man, God's ways, God's rules, God's order, God's design, God's intentionality, God's plans, God's purposes. God's compassion to meet us where we're at. Lean in. God, in his infinite wisdom, is orchestrating this whole thing to a pagan culture who has beliefs within their culture that are completely out of this world. Yet he meets them where they're at in order that he might get to their hearts and rescue them. Praise Christ. Oh man, there's like six or seven exhortations and sermons and, and directives right here for us to camp out on, but, but we're going to get to them later as we march through this sermon series. Let's, let's, keep, let's keep tracking. Okay, so God is in complete control of the book of Jonah and what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life. And, and for today, I just want you to understand that there's absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, in this portion of the Bible from the book of Jonah that doesn't have application for our lives. The Old Testament counts, folks. It all counts. And folks, if you allow me, if you allow me to lead you through this book faithfully, I promise I'll present it simply yet profoundly so it's easy for you 
to swallow whole. Now, now, if you don't remember, I laid out some important themes in the first sermon of our Ephesians series right from the beginning. And I promised that we would learn in the, um, through this framework of the themes of sitting and walking and ultimately standing, right? Sitting and knowing who God is and walking as imitators of Christ and eventually standing as victorious armored up Christians. And, and that framework set us on a beautiful course throughout the book of Ephesians to see all that God had for us. Okay, so in the book of Jonah, we're going to be looking at five critical themes that I believe God has for us in this season as a faith family. And I want you to write these themes down in your notes for future study and reflection, okay? And the first thing I want you to know is that two of these five themes are going to be directly about God. It's going to be, it's going to be all about God. And the other three are going to be focused on humanity, and that means focused on us. Okay, so let's deal with the first two themes about God right now in the book of Jonah. Here, here we go. Here's, here's the first one. The first thing that we're going to be learning about and seeing is that God speaks to us and he seeks after us. So the real question of the series is going to be, will you and will I listen to God and allow him to use us. Because verse 1 of this book says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So I want you to know right now that God is always talking. Our God is always talking. God is ordering our thoughts and he's directing our ways. Therefore, we have to learn to listen and recognize him in both the big moments of our life and in the small, seemingly insignificant ones. I've, I've told my story a bunch of times now here about how my family came to Oregon and Redemption City Church. And there were most definitely big wow, aha moments that had our family collide in Oregon. But there were small, seemingly insignificant moments that reflectively I can see God doing major, major work. But either, get, either way, in the big or the small, God was working to bring us to this point at Redemption City Church. And isn't that so comforting and sobering to know that the God of the universe is always speaking to us? Now, the book of James is written by Jesus' little brother, in case you didn't know, who once said in his little book, don't just go here and, and say you're going to go there and say you're going to do this and do that, but instead ask God where he wants you to go. Instead, ask God what he wants you to say. Man, what would it be like if we, as the people of God, asked God what he thought before we proceeded and made decisions in our lives? So, so when you make that a standard and a pattern and an anthem in your life, the Lord starts to reveal his will to you more and more and more. And, and with that perspective, you begin to walk in a real deep Christ-centered, robust, confidence type of a way as you begin to hear and understand the Lord's will for your life according to his word. And you start to be confident in the decisions and the activities that you choose. And we all want that, don't we? Okay, so here's the deal. God not only speaks, but he seeks after us. I'm going to say that again. He not only speaks to us, he seeks after us. He seeks after us. And if we're being honest, most of us know that's the gospel truth, don't we? Some of us have had real dark seasons where we have ran at lightning speed as fast as we can away from God and his commands and his order within our lives. 
But we know how that story ended for us, don't we? That's a part of our testimony. Eventually, we ran out of steam, and we ran out of the desire to flee, and we ran out of, of all of our ideas of how to be our own little boss and to do our own little deal. Eventually, you, we, you and me, we, we turned around, and we humbled ourselves, and we began that long that long road of repentance, didn't we? We all have been there in some form or fashion if we're being honest with ourselves. And when you and, 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 and when I finally turned around, where was the Lord at? Like, 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 was he barely catching up to us, catching his breath after we finally slowed down from running away from him? Like, no way. He was calmly and effectively right there, ready to receive me and ready to receive you, rebuke us where we needed to be rebuked. But also, wasn't he so ready to lavish his love so comprehensively on our lives? Through his word and his people and his favor, he showed up for you. That's your testimony. We all have the same story. In a way, our story and God's story is that he showed up for us. And he was compassionate and he redeemed us and he got us back on track, didn't he? Folks, God speaks to us and he seeks after us. And we're going to see that in a beautiful, beautiful way. In the book of Jonah, that's our God, folks, the great shepherd who leaves the 99 to pursue you when you wander away. Not just them over here, not just him, not just her. He goes after you, and he goes after me, and we're going to be exploring that reality, and it's beautiful in the book of Jonah. Okay, so let's, let's march to the second theme we're going to be studying throughout the series of the book of Jonah. Here it is. We're going to be studying that God is incredibly Folks, he's incredibly patient towards us. And the real question of the series is going to be, will you imitate his behavior and character of patience towards others as well? And that, that, is, a, that is a real, serious, sobering question. Listen, I can't wait for us to see God's pursuit and God's plans and God's mercy and God's heart and God's patience towards us. And guess what else? And this one's going to be mind-blowing for us. In this book, we're going to look directly at God's rebellion. Directly at it. Now, now, naturally, we're all rebels, aren't we? We just are. Like, if I put some, like, really mysteriously cool-looking jar in the corner of the room, and I told everyone, hey, no one touch the jar. Like, we would all eventually be tempted to touch that jar, especially if we knew we wouldn't get caught, wouldn't we? Like, we're all rebels in that way, and, and, it's, and it's weird that we act like that. But did you know that God is a much bigger rebel than even we are? Like, he's the biggest rebel of us all. Let me explain. God's the biggest rebel because God rebelliously does what we not only regularly refuse to do, but what we describe and proclaim and believe in our hearts is wrong to do. That is very deep. I'm going to say it again. God is the biggest rebel of us all, and he's the biggest rebel because God rebelliously does what we, um, what we not only regularly refuse to do, but we describe and proclaim and believe in our hearts is wrong to do. God rebelliously does what we, what we believe he shouldn't even be doing. Listen, 
God saw the sinful community of Nineveh, and he tells Jonah, do you know what I want to do to them? And, and Jonah's like, oh yeah, God, let me hear it, let me hear it. How bad are these unbelievers and these rebels and these sinners going to get what they deserve? Tell me, tell me, what do you want to do to them, God? And God says, Jonah, I want to save them. That's what I want to do. And, and that absolutely freaks Jonah out, folks. Wait till you see it when we learn it. He freaks out. Jonah did not want to hear that. So as we start to march through this book, you're going to see that in a real, real way. I promise. And what's so crazy and ironic is that one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, one of the most famous verses, comes, for jo- comes from Jonah's very own mouth when he says, salvation is the Lord's. Folks, that's the key to everything. And don't you ever dare forget it. Salvation comes from God alone, not from our recommendations, not, for our, not from our approval. Like, do you hear me? God does not need me and your approval rating to make a decision on whom he saves and how he saves them. And Jonah, the prophet of God, learned that in this season of his life, in his time with God. And that's why he says, man, salvation is the Lord's. Namely, God is truly rebellious in his love and saves whomever he wants. So so if you're a seeker or you're a wanderer about the faith and and you've been wrongly oppressed by legalistic religion or, or perhaps you've been taxed out and you're overwhelmed and confused and you're so empty and tired from all the theological and, dare I say, illogical rhetoric, Hey, hey, if you've been a victim, I'm so sorry. If you've been a victim of terrible circumstances, things done to you, or or you're the perpetrator, and you're the one that's caused horrible circumstances in someone else's life, above all things, I want you to know that God is relentless in his love and in his pursuit and in his patience and in his plans for all of you. He just is. God is patient, and he's completely focused on saving so many of us who are alive today. That's, that's what he's about, folks. So, so what does that do for your heart when you think about the God that you're about to learn about according to that perspective? Like when you look out and you see depravity and, uh, um, and, 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 and all of the sin in our world, when you see all the drugs and all the alcohol and the abuse and the crime and the murder, when you, when, when you see it and you want to pull your hair out and say, Ah, Lord! What's wrong with these people? When you know and when you see that God responds with great circumspection and great care and says, I know, I know, but I want to save them and I want to rescue them and I want to redeem them and I want to reconcile them. Will you compassionately join me on this mission? What do you think about when you hear that message. Okay, so, so, so not only are we going to be learning about both these things about our God, that he, that he speaks to us, that he, that he seeks us, amen, that, he, that he's patient towards us, and he's patient towards others that we may not be patient towards, man, we're going to be exploring about our reaction to that. 
in a real way. Okay, so so let me pick up the pace a little bit as we kind of look at these last three themes about humanity or or basically about us. And and I'll try not to unpack them too much. Here, here we go. They're on your screen. Theme number three. We're gonna be learning that man's bent towards faulty rebellion and judgmentalism. We're gonna see that in a real way, that we are naturally inclined to be faulty in our rebellious spirit, and we are massively judgmental creatures. So the real question of the series is going to be, will you join humanity towards that faulty rebellion and judgmentalism in your life, or are you going to choose a different way? Let's look at theme number four. We're going to be learning about man's hatred and coldness and reluctance towards kingdom living. We're going to see that. And the real question of the series is going to be, will you choose to live your life marked by hatred and coldness and reluctance or by love, compassion, and Christ-centered eagerness, folks? What are you going to choose for your life? And then finally, the fifth theme we're going to be learning about is man's choice between obedience and disobedience. And the real question of this series is going to be, will you choose enduring obedience? Not sometimes, not when it's convenient, not every other week, but enduring obedience or divisive disobedience. Folks, in each of these themes, every single day, we have a choice to make don't we? Okay, so, so I want to give you just a, just a little bit more framework to help us in this, this, this march we're going to be going on in the book of Jonah. So let's unpack right now what I'm calling the pastoral Jonah story arc tree, so you can start to understand the framework of this very important book. Here it is that's on your screen. The, the first thing we're going to be kind of seeing as we look and learn through the story of Jonah is the call of God. It starts with a call that God gives. And, and the second thing we're going to be learning as we march through the book of Jonah is, is the rebellion of Jonah. We're going to look at that in a real way. And then we're going to be looking at the repentance, the repentance of Jonah. And we're going to see what that means for our lives. And then we're going to be looking at the revival of Jonah. And that, and we're going to see great hope there. And, and folks, all of this is going to be our framework as we prepare our hearts in prayer right now as we venture just a little bit into the book today. Because believe it or not, that was only my opening foundations and proclamations for the book of Jonah. And the goal is going to be that we will walk through just the very first three verses today, just, just a little bit, and then we're going to recircle around them next week and take them even deeper, okay? So, so let's pray about all all of this as we march forward into the book of Jonah. Let's, let's bow our heads. Abba Father, it's absolutely spectacular to think about how much you love us and how, and how we have the capacity as born-again children to love you back. And, and the fact that we learn all of this by reading words on pages is absolutely mind-blowing and miraculous, Lord. Because it's highly improbable and it's so extraordinary to think that the most intimate and real relationship we could ever have is discovered between the lines of Scripture, but it's true. 
And it's a miracle. So, Lord, as we begin to track through the book of Jonah, I pray that the people participating in this series will experience miracles upon miracles upon miracles in their lives. That that unexpected and extraordinary obedience to your heartbeat of character and compassion and patience and rescuing love for all people to be reconciled to you would become our heartbeat and anthem as well. I pray for wisdom and clarity of both mind and spirit over myself as I offer my gifts as a living vessel to preach this sermon. May we walk away changed by your word. It's because of your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Okay, here we go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's, let's do this. Here, here it is on your screen. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Man, I just love how the book of Jonah opens up right in the middle of a thought. Listen, God doesn't stop and he doesn't start his character or his direction or his plans for anyone. He's seamless and his goals are always without interruption. We are humans and God is in pursuit and he's seeking after to redeem humanity and take us away from our sin and back into righteousness with himself. And in that vein and under that magnificent reality, the author proclaims right here in the text, the word of the Lord came to us and it came to Jonah and said, arise. That's that's very important. And I just want you to know right now that the word of the Lord continues to be presented to those to whom he has called to this very to this very day. And the presentation always starts with the Lord telling us to arise, folks. He's always calling us to arise. Now, now have you ever wondered what the word of the Lord might have actually sounded like audibly? Like, from a practical perspective, like, after all, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet, and so it could have been audible. Like, literally, he could have heard God's voice. But, folks, it also could have been a deep sensation within his heart that he felt the presence of the Lord telling him to do something. Or, really, it could have happened or occurred in an infinite amount of different ways. But regardless of how it happened functionally, and that's going to be very important later, God is declaring in Scripture, I'm still speaking today and I'm calling you to arise. And and I want to share with you three ways that God still speaks to us today so we can understand that for our lives as we get ready to see what God's doing with Jonah so we can have confidence about this reality. Okay, so here's number one. It's on your screen. God speaks through his infallible word contained in the book, the precious book that we call the Bible. And we lifted up this anthem of God's word being his voice all throughout the book of Ephesians, didn't we? So as we continue to deepen our understanding of God's word, he will comfort you and direct you through his word. So so for those of you who, who often say, I don't hear God's voice ever. I wish I did, but I just don't hear him, Pastor Brandon. The first question that comes to my mind when I hear that type of a statement is, okay, well, when's the last time? You've been in his book. When's the last time you've been in the word? Because if you get in his book, God most definitely is speaking to you. I just want you to know that, but you just may not be, you may not be listening. Okay, number two, God speaks in congruence with his book by the way 
of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit inside of you. I'm talking about that Spirit-filled position, that fully focused on Jesus everywhere and all the time position that God has lavished upon your life. Because once you put the thoughts of God, which are found in the Word of God, inside of you, God promises us in the, te- promises us in the text that the Holy Spirit will bring to our remembrance what we need in His Word exactly when we need it most. What a promise. So, so when things occur in your life, God's precious word becomes a roadmap towards God's desires and, and direction for you in that circumstance or in that situation. That's, that's really good news. So, so just know that whether it's a feeling or it's an impression or a, a vision or a dream or an audible message that you hear, whatever God gives you, it always will line up, folks with his book and the words that he's inspired. So if you ever get an impression or a thought or a nudge or a dream or an audible message that doesn't line up with his book, you can radically know faithfully that that is not from God. It just isn't. So, so if that's you, you just you take a nap, get some food in your system, something's going wrong, and recalibrate your thoughts because God does not contradict his word. Okay, number three, God speaks through his bride and expresses it through the local church often. Folks, God doesn't just speak to us through his word or by the way of the Holy Spirit, but he also does it through his chosen people. Like, like have you ever found yourself in need of advice or help, and, and then you come to your brother or your sister in Christ, and they just radically start speaking directly into your life situation, and all of a sudden, God uses that grandma or that mentor or that friend, and, and you walk away feeling like you got everything you needed, and it was, it was as if God was speaking to you. It's because he does do that. God uses people all the time, and he's done it pervasively throughout the very Bible that you're reading. So, okay, so so here's the deal. If you really want to grow closer to God, seek out men and women who love, love, love God, and God's going to use them to be his very voice of affirmation within your life. Seriously, folks, life on life discipleship and the verbal passing of God's word through the vehicle of Rhema is right and a true and a good thing presented all over Scripture. But always remember, if that counsel that you're receiving doesn't accord with the Word of God, you can know radically that that is not, that is not from Him. So, so if that's you, remember, take a nap, get some food in your system, something's going wrong, and recalibrate your heart. God doesn't use people to contradict his word. Because overall, irrespective of which way you are most frequently hearing God's voice, and, and I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful that you're hearing him in all three of these ways, but, but no matter which way, the decision is going to be yours today. As you look at the text and you go through this series, it's going to be your decision regarding are you going to grow and respond to the Lord's calling or are you going to sit dormant after he speaks to you? Are you going to respond and act upon the kingdom-focused commands God gives and are you going to offer back kingdom-focused responses? Or are you going to remain in a spiritual slumber? 
or are you going to remain asleep? Okay, so, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah that day, right? Okay, so God was calling Jonah that day to listen and to take some form some form of activity and some form of an action step. Now, now let's keep tracking now into verse two, verse two, and see that more. Now, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me." Like, do you notice what the actual word of the Lord, what was the actual word of the Lord that came to Jonah? What was it in form of the directives? Do you see it? Look closely. There's three commands, three directives that God gave. They're, they're on your screen now. He, it was the directive, arise. Get up from what you're doing right now. Go. Leave the spot that you're in and move intentionally in the direction I'm calling you to. And call out call out. Pay attention. Most often when God speaks, he does so with the expectation that you and me are going to recognize that he's desiring a response from, from us. And, and you can search all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament, and what you're going to see is that almost every single time God speaks in this Bible, he's requiring a response from his people. Okay, so there is a theology in our culture today that says that it's all about getting the best life now and the best everything now and that God desires always to bless us because he's so mind-blown with how awesome we are. And and popular Christianity says today that God doesn't expect anything back from us. He just wants us to name it and claim it, blab it and grab it because we are so so amazing. But in reality, biblically, when the Lord speaks, folks, I just want you to know that he almost always says, arise. Like, like arise from where you're at. Go. Go do something for me that I'm explicitly telling you to do and call out so you can glorify me in the activity that I'm calling you to go into. Okay, well, well, why? Why? Okay, folks, because he wants to give you not only your best life now, but he wants to set you up for your best life with him forever in eternity. But, but not just for you, right? Like, but also for others. God is pursuing the, the broken and, and the desolate and the widows and the sufferers for eternity as well. We got to rise we got to go, and we got to call out. But, but, but that's kind of the popular part to say, right? Like, we love thinking of God rescuing and sending us to save the voiceless and the helpless. But, but do you know who else God is radically, radically concerned about having you pursue with your life? Do you know who else he wants to redeem? He, he's after the cheaters. He's after the swindlers. He's after the abusers. He's after the violent. He's after the murderers. He's after them too. And, and I just want you to know that in this series. And if you're thinking I'm exaggerating, just ask Paul, the one who committed many murders. Or, or just think through Zacchaeus, uh, the one who stole and cheated out so many people and families. Uh, just ask the man on the cross who was next to Jesus, who was one of the worst uh, one of the worst um, prisoners of, of that time because each of their stories will tell you that God is truly after us all. Oh man, all of a sudden this sermon just got real unpopular real quick, didn't it? Well, well, you got to deal with that because, because it's true. 
God wants to bless you, and, and he wants to bless me, but he also wants to bless others. And the reality is, he also wants us to get involved with that, specifically partnering with us, partnering with, he specifically wants us to partner with him towards that mission. Rest assured, he's going to call you to arise and to go and to call out to people. But what we're going to learn in the book of Jonah is that he's going to call us to arise and to go and to call to people that we never imagined that he would want us to pursue. And we're going to see powerfully that picture in this series. And if you're sitting around waiting for the Lord to say something to spice up your spiritual life, if you feel a bit dead inside regarding your faith and you want to feel that passion you once had again, as your pastor, I'm urging you to stop being a hearer only of God's word as we work through this series and to start being a radically committed doer of his word throughout the week, James chapter 1, verse 22. Instead of choosing to just read your Bibles only so you don't feel guilty about not checking it off your, your to-do list, how about you step into this radical dare that I have for you this week? Are you ready? Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Get ready for this. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Okay. I dare you. No, I double dog dare you to open your Bible today by yourself or with someone else, a friend or a loved one, over dinner or coffee, and, and say this, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible today. And I'm going to go to church this week. And I'm going to listen for your Holy Spirit. And I want you to tell me to do something today in your word. And whatever I read and whatever you're asking me to do, I'm simply going to do it and say, yes, I'm going to arise. I'm going to go. And I'm going to call out about what you're saying. Oh man, now that's a faithful double dog dare, right? That's a faithful prayer coming into your Bible study right now if you want it to be so. Because if you start doing that, all of a sudden, things aren't going to be boring and meaningless anymore. I promise. And, and your life's going to begin to change and your life's going to begin to make an impact and your joy, folks, your joy is going to be made full. And, and every, every one of us is pursuing joy all the time. It, it, it's just true. We're always looking for more joy over here and more happiness over there and more fun up there and a little bit more pleasure down down there. But, but folks, joy, true, lasting, enduring, attractive joy is found in a life yielded to God, following and gladly obeying his design. There's no other way to truly be happy and lasting and satisfaction in your life under God, but to trust and obey the things he's calling you to do. So, so in verse 2, when the author said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it was God saying, come on, let's go do something, Jonah. Let's, let's get active. You're my prophet of Israel. Let's get active and let's take an action step. Arise and go to this great city. 
And, and this is something, namely Great City, that we should talk about right now. Because historically, at that time, it's important for you to know, as we keep setting the stage, that Nineveh was viewed as the greatest city in the entire world. Nineveh had walls surrounding it that were, ready, 100 feet tall and 30 feet wide. That's crazy. In fact, it was so wide, you could ride with three full chariots side by side around the city walls on the top safely. Folks, the city walls were so expansive that, they, that there were 200-foot towers, exactly 1,200 of them, surrounding city walls. Scholars and historians say that upwards of 6 million people lived within the city gates of Nineveh. Now, now, in the 19th century, they discovered the ruins of Nineveh, okay, we discovered it. And, and it was a huge deal because up until that discovery, Nineveh had often been considered by many as a fable and a legend's tale. But, but once the ruins were discovered in modern-day Iraq, just so you know, historians changed their whole tune, not only about Nineveh, but the accuracy of the Bible's description of Nineveh. Wow. And all of a sudden, the Bible gained immense credibility in secular historians' eyes, therefore in biblical theologians' eyes. And you could, that's something too. Who's following who? And, and, and you can still go there today and explore these gigantic walls right now. You can literally walk up and touch the walls of the ruins and even see a digitally reconstructed, perfected um, demonstration of the walls of Nineveh. And when I thought about that during my sermon prep, man, I just was getting lost in the greatness of this city when I was reading all the descriptions of how mighty this city was. Like when I meditated on the fact that even God in Scripture called Nineveh a great city in terms of its stature and how big it was, yet, yet now it's gone, I found that to be very profound. When I thought about the fact that Nineveh had their own proverbial Walgreens and Walmart and top shopping malls and, and theme parks and, and really nice dog parks and, and perhaps even hiking trails and everything you could possibly imagine, everything that a great city has, when I thought about that reality, no matter how great of a city that Nineveh was, the reality is, folks, it's completely gone now. It's totally gone. Folks, the great city of Nineveh is done. It's toast. It's finished. It no longer exists. Pay attention. Okay, so whatever great things you think you have going on right now in your life, no matter how great of a city you think you're living in, no matter how great your house is, no matter how great you think your marriage is, no matter how great your family is, no matter how large your income is, it's not your hope. Do you hear me? Folks, for us as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in eternity. We are to be eternity-minded people. We live and breathe and act and play and rejoice and suffer and worship in light of eternity, being with our, our Father and Savior forever, praise Christ. We are called to be eternally minded people, understanding that we are only temporarily valuable down here.
I'm going to say it to you again. We are called to be eternally minded individuals, understanding that we are only temporarily valuable down here. Okay, so God told Jonah, he told him to get up and to go to this great city of Nineveh. And, and, and then in chapter 3, which we'll see later in the series, we'll see that Jonah recalls a time when God commanded him to go to this city. And, and he reveals that it took him three days to travel from one side of the city to the other side of the city. Like this city was large. Now, now hold this intention. This great city was directly and totally on God's radar of needing transformation. And in response to that need, God decided to send one man to this great city. Are you tracking? He, he didn't send 12 disciples. He, he didn't send 100 mighty men. He didn't send 1,000 warriors. No, God sent one man and told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. And, and I want you to underline, do it, underline the part, the evil of Nineveh coming before God in your Bible so that you always have that right there in verse 2. Because when God says the evil of that city has come before me, it's both a warning and something incredibly awesome. Let me, let me explain. It's, it, it's a warning, but it's, it's also super, super awesome. You see, the wickedness that happened in, in that city was God's problem. It wasn't Jonas. I'm going to say it to you again. The wickedness that was happening in the city, that's, that, was God. That, was, that was God's problem to solve. It wasn't Jonas. God said, I see exactly what's going on within this city, and I want to deal with it. So Jonah, go there and tell them I'm on my way. Look at the text. Tell them to clean up a little bit is what God said. Hey, tell them, tell them to clean up a little bit because I see the wickedness that's going on there and tell them I'm on. Tell them I'm on my way, Jonah. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you see the wickedness going on right now within your culture? Like, doesn't it make you crazy? Like, perhaps some of us are numb to it, and I hope not, but, but I think some of us, we do get numb to it, unfortunately. But here's the deal. God's got the wickedness that's going on in America. God's got the wickedness that's going on in the dark places. God's got the wickedness that's going on in the horror stories that you hear about all the time in the news. He's got it completely under control, and he knows what he's going to do about it. And we got to remember that as a people of God. But our part is to be his witnesses, shining the light and being willing and being obedient and being available. You with me? It's about being someone who is usable for God's will. That's our part. But, but I don't want you to sleep on the phrase, their evil has come before him. Not us, him. Because despite the greatness of this city, no matter how big and how strong their walls were, God still saw everything. Nothing was hidden from God. Nothing. The shiny parts of the cities didn't cloak the indwelling sin inside of those walls. Not even a little bit. And guess what? God still sees everything today, folks. There's not one single thing going on in your life or in your secret closet. There's no secret avenues or rendezvous where you can hide from the presence of the Lord. Are you tracking with me? God sees it all. He's fully aware of all things, and you and I won't be getting off the hook. Do you hear me? 
No one gets off the hook. God is going to seek, God is going to pursue, and God is going to confront us about our lives and our choices and our inclinations in our heart. But you know what else God is saying to us? God's saying, Brandon, I love you so much that I'm going to send you a Jonah when you need it most. I'm going to, I'm going to send you a prophet. I'm going to send you a, or in our context, I'm going to send you a, a woman of God or a man of God or a pastor or a friend or a mentor. When you need it most, I'm going to send them to you to wake you up. I'm going to send someone to give you a strong warning. And I want them to do that because I love you. Uh, it's like God saying, Brandon, I'm going to send you a Jonah in your life when you need it most so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that I see you. I radically see you. I see what you're doing and I don't approve. But most importantly, I want to provide the opportunity for you to have redemption. I want to rescue you. My son. And, and do you know why he does all of this? Do you know why the God of the universe does all of this? He does this because he wants us to be at peace with him. He wants us to be at peace with others. And folks, he wants you to be at peace with yourself. We are, we serve a good and gracious God who wants to increase our peace and maximize our joy every single day, folks. He desperately wants to maximize our joy. He desperately wants to increase our peace. Now, now, now holding that attention, let's look again at a few more things in verse 2. One, one more time. And the word of the Lord says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Okay, so every commentary and every resource that I use to prepare for this sermon series, I just want you to know that they went into great, great, crazy great detail about the Ninevites and, and what they would do to their enemies and, and to the cities that they would try and always conquer. And, I, and I'm not going to and I'm not going to do that today, going into that kind of detail. Honestly, it didn't seem necessary or pastorally appropriate to really camp out like that, because I believe that for us today, as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians, what we need most activated is the, the anthem and the, and the thematic marching song that God is saying, I'm I'm compassionate, I'm patient, and I'm going to save whom I choose. That is what we're going to focus on. But but just to be faithful, 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 I'm going to give a couple illustrations so that we can be the amazing student learners that I know that we are so we can understand contextually what's going on. Okay, so, so if you've ever seen any footage from World War II with Hitler and you understand what he did to his enemies, I want you to know right now that that was like kindergartens playing in a sandbox compared to what the Ninevites did to their enemies. And folks, I'm not playing. The Ninevites were the craziest of craziest. And, and many theological uh, historians and theological um, and theologians call the Ninevites the worst and most insidious culture that's ever existed. 
And I mean the worst of worst. Like, honestly, I'm not going to go into great detail about the hideous and disgusting and sinister things that they did to people and children and women because it's not even appropriate for me to say with children listening to this sermon and even some young teenagers. But I want you to know that they were the worst of worst. And I want you to know that these horrible and hideous and wicked and nasty people, God said, I want to save them. I want to forgive them. And I want to change them. And I want to rescue them. Man, that is so complex. And it's so deep. But it's so productive for our lives. This is the type of preaching that fancy Disney Channel type churches do not want to preach. And most definitely, we don't want to hear when we want our ears tickled. This is not a sermon for the church that wants to stay squeaky clean all the time. Are you tracking? This is not for the squeaky clean family. This is for the Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church and people of God who want to risk their comfort to reach their city according to the, the Bible as God has called us to do. Because let me tell you right now, the gospel truth is that the God of the universe wants to invade a dark and messy world through the vehicle of a faithful yet messy church who believes by faith that all people are able to be washed and cleansed and born again. I'm going to say it again. The gospel truth is that the God of the universe wants to invade a dark and messy world through the vehicle of a faithful yet messy church who believes by faith that all people are worthy of being washed, cleansed, and born again. Pay attention. The book of Jonah illustrates for you and me the heart of God, not the heart of man. The book of Jonah is about the heart and the compassion and the patience of God, not us. Listen, we don't need any illustrations or sermon series to know the heart of man, do we? Because we are quick to judge, and we are quick to, be, to unforgive, and we are quick to cast life sentences on people in the court of our opinions. But our God on high, he is quick to intervene and to send his rebellious forgiveness and his message of reconciliation through his true his true children, his true messengers of the shoes of the gospel of peace. Because I promise you, the wickedness of these people was unprecedented. In fact, when surrounding villages, this is going to give you a perspective, when surrounding villages knew that the Ninevites were on their way, they would look at themselves and say, the Ninevites are coming. We need to kill our entire community immediately. And folks, they would carry it out and do it and kill themselves. That's how bad the Ninevites were, folks. Whole communities, whole tribes would literally kill themselves just by the knowledge that the Ninevites were en route. Keep tracking. And God saw them and said, okay, let's deal with this. We got to go get those Ninevites. Jonah, arise. Jonah, go. All right, now let's look briefly at verse 3 as we prepare to land the plane. And the word, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
Oh, man. Now, notice that Tarshish is mentioned three times uh, in this verse right here. And what's so important for us to know is that Tarshish was, uh, was the furthest place at this time that, you could, that a person could run away from everything. Okay, so, so literally Jonah is trying to run as far as humanly possible to his best ability from what God was calling him to do. Wow, well, and Tarshish, just so you know, is modern-day Spain, folks. So that's incredibly far at that time, right? All the way in Spain. So, so this is a gigantic fling posture and distance Jonah was implementing as he tried to evade what God, folks, what God was calling him to do. And so if you're tracking with me, the first question you should be thinking is, why? Why was Jonah so determined to flee from God's directive at that specific moment in the story? Like, like, well, let me make this simple yet profound for you. Like, I pray that this whole sermon series is going to eventually be. Okay, if you were a Jew in World War II, would you want to go up to Hitler and give him a rebuke? Like, no way. Like, can you imagine saying, excuse me, Mr. Hitler, uh, my name is Brandon and I'm a Jew and I'd like to have a word with you about how you're doing things around here. Like, no, you, you wouldn't want to do that. So yes, Jonah had a very understandable reason not to want to go where God was calling him to go. Jonah didn't want to go somewhere as dangerous as this. Nobody wants to go to the Ninevites. You run from the Ninevites. You kill yourself before the Ninevites. And God's telling him to go to a place where he might lose his life. So, so is that you? Be faithful today, listener. Are there some things that feel a bit dangerous that God is calling you to do right now in your life? And you're avoiding it. Maybe you're going to lose some relationships that you're coveting by doing what God tells you to do. Maybe you're going to lose the opportunity for this job that you really covet by doing the right thing. Whatever it is, do you feel the Lord calling you to do something that feels dangerous? Or, or, or maybe, maybe Jonah wasn't afraid of the danger. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was just afraid of being mocked. Maybe his greatest fear wasn't that the Ninevites would kill him but it was that the Ninevites would make fun of him. And, and perhaps you're struggling right now in your life with some things that God's calling you to do because you're tripped up and you're trapped up, trapped up worrying about people's opinions of you all the time, and you're a people pleaser. Maybe, maybe you're concerned that by following Jesus and his kingdom-focused commands in your life, people are going to make fun of who you are and think that you're weird and think that you're strange or, or stupid or, or disconnected from reality. But, but, but maybe, folks, maybe, maybe Jonah wasn't afraid of being killed, and maybe he wasn't afraid of being mocked either. Maybe Jonah was most afraid of simply being rejected. Maybe it wasn't death. And maybe it wasn't ridicule. Maybe he didn't want to be rejected. And for some of us, that's our biggest struggle in our lives, isn't it? The, the, the reality of being rejected because of our stance with Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's the thing that's holding you back right now from following and really tapping out and looking up and linking into God's command because you don't want to be rejected by, by people in your life, maybe even your family, when God tells you to arise and to go do something that he's commanding you to do. Is, is, that, perhaps, is that perhaps you? Okay, so here's the deal. Well, 
Luckily, Jonah actually tells us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He reveals it in chapter 4, actually. And I'm going to keep setting this stage. And in chapter 4, Jonah says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew, God, that you were trying to pursue the Ninevites with the hopes of forgiving them and reconciling them and redeeming them. And I don't want them redeemed. I don't want that to happen. Wow. So, so, so Jonah wasn't primarily worried about dying. He wasn't primarily worried about being mocked. And he wasn't worried about being rejected. He had bitterness in his heart and he wanted nothing to do with God's redemption plan. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites saved. Jonah wanted them to pay. He wanted justice. He wanted them destroyed. Jonah didn't want them to be, to be offered kindness and forgiveness and the grace of the Lord. Jonah didn't want to offer a servant's apron. He wanted to activate a soldier's sword. Jonah didn't want them to have an opportunity. Jonah wanted justice and vengeance. And folks, I want you to know that that, that is the heart of mankind. And folks, that's our heart. And, and before you start judging Jonah's condition, crucifying the speck in his eye, but saying, what kind of Christian was Jonah? Doesn't he know that Christians are supposed to be compassionate, filled with love? Um, um, before you start doing that, I want you to understand that this isn't some lifetime movie that you're watching on your couch with your family. Jonah was going through this in real time and real life. These Ninevites were not some kids who stole candy from the candy store. This was a gospel-centered, provocative, scandalous mission from God to Jonah to arise and to go to the worst people on the planet and to offer them salvation, to specifically arise and go on mission to save people that Jonah knew were the author of murdering people's families, molesting people's children, and things way worse than even that, that I will not mention in this series. So Jonah wanted them to die. Are you tracking? So, so how ready would you be today if God called you to arise and go minister to those kinds of people? Like, like what if God is calling you to arise and go to the murderer and the abuser and the molester and the cheater? Would, would, would you be ready to say, yes, God? Wherever you say, I'm going. Would you arise and go and call out to them with love and compassion with your family risking their comfort? You, you see, you and I, you see, we want that mercy for our lives, don't we? We want to be forgiven and we want peace and joy in our lives. But when the Lord offers it to the, that same peace and joy to others that we deem aren't qualified, we want nothing to do with it. Okay, so so the Lord has to teach me and the Lord has to teach you about his radical rebellion towards that disposition in our hearts. Cuz you see God is not his his primary functional desire is not to have a heavy hand on his people, but it's to have a compassionate rescue plan for all those who want to tap out to their old life. And that is what makes verse 3 so very sad regarding Jonah's decision to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord who is calling out to him. You tracking? Like, like, look at all these verbs in verse 3. I'm going to put it on the screen again. Like, like he, was, he went down, he, he paid the fare, he fled. Look at all these verbs of disobedience. 
Jonah was working very, very hard to distance himself, folks, and he was paying heavy prices to get away from God the entire time. Like, have you ever found that to be true in your life? Because when you run from the will of God, and you run from the presence of God, and you run from the commands of God, the prices you eventually pay are in the currency of pain, regret, sorrow, and shame. Man, it's not worth it. And the price for running is so steep for those who keep down that path. When you run away from God, there's so many hidden proverbial fees and taxes that you can't imagine. And folks, they're not going to feel good. If you track that way, the expenses and the efforts needed to run away from the Lord are way more intense and costly than the efforts to run towards his presence and his kingdom-focused commands. Running away from the Lord, folks, is like trying to run uphill with a 150-pound weight jacket on. It's just ridiculously unnecessary and laborious. God's word is so deep and it's so wise. And we're going to learn so much here in the book of Jonah. And I wish I could just keep going and going and going right now because this book is going to be so amazing. So, so, so next week, we're going to circle even deeper around verses 1 through 3 now that we have set this stage. And, and we may add a couple more verses after that. But, but let's finish up today by, by bowing our heads and really softening our hearts and, and, and opening our minds as we pray to God about everything we've discussed today. Because for us to be the church that God's called us to be, we have to be ready to go and arise and to call out to people that are so different than you and I. And it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be attractive, but so goes the will of the Lord. Will we submit to it? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we are here today. And I'll just be honest, I don't know whether people that are listening are running away from you right now or they're running towards you. But here's the thing, Lord, you know what they're doing right now in their life. And I trust that you are going to be active so supremely. And so, God, as we get into the book of Jonah next week, studying the grand meta narrative of your grace and your kindness and your mercy in light of and in contrast to who we are and how we think and how we do things, I pray now for the faulty, rebellious spirit in all of us here at RCC. Because right now, our hearts are beating, and that means we still have a chance for you to change our hearts. Therefore, may you start the transformation process in us each week through the book of Jonah. Father, each person that you bring here to this church service, may they be different because of the word. Rather, they are a visitor or they're a member. May both parties recognize that this conversation is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. So I pray, Lord, that you revive the hearts of the old people and the young people in our church. Ignite a passion in all of us to live for you and to explore you and to know you and to act upon your word, to do what you say to do when you say to do it, and to believe that you're good and to follow you all the days of our lives. So before we close today, we, we just thank you for the reminder that you're better than Jonah and that you're better than us because you left your throne and you went to our neighbors and you preach the gospel to our criminals and you pay the debt for the frauds and you rose from the dead and you asked us to come with you 
in this missional life to that same very end. So, so if there's anyone here today that knows that they're a rebel, perhaps not just a rebel towards helping the difficult, but simply a rebel in a way that stands contrary to your will. If there's anyone that's tired, Lord, of doing things their way, may they just tap out today. And finally, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity to have to walk with these people through the book of Ephesians and now through the book of Jonah. May Jonah be just as rich as Ephesians. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Let's do this, Redemption City Church.